1: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. going to pull back
2: the curtain on episode number 136 right out of the gate. We've already recorded our interview segment and our segment with Benjamin Hill this week. And I got to tell you, phenomenal. Lovely. I got to tell you.
0: So that's that's what we call in the industry a team.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just worried that I'm going to screw up three strikes. And uh, I I feel like I should probably keep it brief for that reason.
0: Yeah, no, we're, we're going to do that anyways because we went long with a, with our guest and with Ben, but which is fine. Deservedly so. To
2: yeah, exactly, yeah. which we don't generally get to say recording a podcast on November 29th. So that's pretty cool. Um, so, with that, welcome inside episode number 136 of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com. My name is Tyler Mon. He is Sam Dykstra in New York City. We are uh, into the, the full on minor league offseason. The AFL is behind us. Um, we've got some off season topics to get to today, uh, and then we're We're going to be talking with a very interesting prospect who kind of dovetails. Do you dovetail into or out of? I don't know. Um, One of our topics, which we'll get to is strike three. Um, But before we get to all of that, Thanks for tuning in. Wherever you find us, you can catch the show before the show podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, on the Stitcher app, and wherever else you find your podcasts. We're also at MILB.com slash podcast, where you can find past episodes and get in touch with the show, podcast at MILB.com. Sam's on Twitter, Sam Dykstra, MILB. I am at Tyler Mon And uh, give us a rating and a review and a subscription, and we would be ever so grateful to keep our perfect five-star rating on the old iTunes machine. And, um... Yeah, let's dive in. Um, Coming up here in just a little bit, Los Angeles Angels – of Anaheim prospect Michael Hermosillo will join the show and uh, we'll talk about one of the reasons why aside from the fact that Michael's an extremely insightful intelligent fun dude to talk to and a really good prospect but a reason why he is especially noteworthy as of this week coming up here in a little bit but we're gonna get started with three strikes this week with two strikes coming from a question submitted to us on Twitter from one of our most loyal of listeners the john t uh john t who has followed us on twitter and listened to the show for a long long time john submitted this one and it was a really really good question two part question so we're going to use it for parts 1 and 2 strikes 1 and 2 this week um here is his quote i'd like to hear you guys tell us on the podcast about your top prospect busts but not due to injury and your best non-prospect surprises quote, I never thought he'd be this good types of guys. So we're going to start um, on the bust side. And unfortunately, it seemed like it was it was a lot easier to think of guys on the bust side than it was um, guys that kind of came out of nowhere. But um, Sam, what did, what did you think of first for this question?
0: Yeah, uh, I was going back. Um, so as some of you might know, as some of you might not know, I, I started covering the minors exclusively uh, in 2012. And I was trying to think of people around that age, uh, you know, who would probably be major league regulars right now. We certainly thought they might be, um, and that didn't quite or haven't quite worked out. Um, and, you know, I came up with some names, some of which I'm sure Tyler's going to talk about. And I'll get, I'll let him get to those. Um, one of the things that kind of stood out to me was that the 2013 draft and the 2014 draft, uh, some of the top names in, in those drafts just have not shaked out the way we thought. Uh, specifically, Mark Appel, and, and I'll let Tyler talk more about him in a little bit. Cole Stewart, uh, Trey Ball, a lot of those guys were not protected in the rule, f- or not protected from this year's foot Rule Five draft. They were eligible for it, uh, not added to the forty-man roster, or in Appel's case, ended up being DFA'd, uh, taken off the forty-man roster of the Phillies. Um, and and you know most of these guys are arms and, and trying to project pitching can be tough. So I get that, uh, 2014 kind of similar, you know, obviously Brady Aiken didn't sign with the Astros that year, ended up going to the Indians a year later and has experienced all sorts of elbow issues and control issues. Uh, but for being a guy who was one, one, his career has not gone nearly the way he would have liked. And then the second pick that year, Tyler Kolick went to the Marlins. He's also undergone Tommy John surgery, Um, So two really promising pitchers in the top of that draft haven't worked out. Uh, But the guy who I would probably pick as the biggest bust um, since I've really covered baseball was probably Jesus Montero, who was kind of Gary Sanchez before Gary Sanchez. Uh, In fact, everybody was worried Gary Sanchez was going to turn into the next Jesus Montero. You know, coming up in the Yankee system, maybe part of that is Yankees hype. Who knows? But this was a guy who consistently would hit, you know, around 300, uh, take his walks, show good power, be a catcher, uh, you know, as he kind of progressed, was he going to stick at catcher? Was he going to stick it for, or move to first base? What was that going to be like? Eventually gets moved to the Mariners. Um, you know, in, in a short sample for the Yankees before that, OPS is 996. You know, peak prospect, the whole thing. Um, you know, hit 20-plus home runs in 2010 at A Scranton. And then we never really heard too much from him. At, this year, he played 13 games at AAA Norfolk, uh, hit 143 with a 340 OPS, end up being cut, goes to the Mexican League. Uh, as of right now, I think he's playing in Venezuela uh, Winter League, putting up better numbers there again. But again, he's a man without a position. He's 28 years old, uh, right-handed slugger, you know, for being what we thought would be the game's next big slugger uh, and the game's next big hitting catcher, just never really put it all together. And you know as much as we like to think, if you can produce a triple A as young as he was, you know the earlier part of this decade, then you are going to produce at the major league level. His is a cautionary tale that that's not always going to happen. And questions about athleticism can get really exposed in the majors. And then he's obviously had some other problems in the Mariner system involving suspensions and altercations with coaches and scouts and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so Montero might be the biggest plus for, seen, for somebody who seemed like a tacked on major league regular uh, to deflate as quickly as he has. He's kind of the one that stuck out in my mind.
2: Yeah, and, you know, this is such a difficult conversation because we've seen so many of these guys go through so much stuff that you start to pull for them. I mean, Jesus Montero, the the issue a few years ago where he had the altercation during a game with a scout who worked for the Mariners who called him fat, uh, as he was running off the field. And then Montero, the next year, shows up to spring training, had lost something like 30 pounds, looked like he was in some of the best physical shape he had ever been in, you know, the old cliche, best shape of his life thing for spring training, but really seemed contrite, like he wanted to make it work. It just hasn't been there for him. And it's never easy to talk about guys in this context. Um, and the the guy who we actually both had on our list for this conversation is a guy who we really like, who's been really enjoyable to talk to every time we've interviewed him. He was, I believe, our first guest on on the minor league baseball podcast as far as players go. And that's Mark Capella, who was the first overall selection in the 2013 draft. That was when he was a senior coming out of Stanford. The year prior to that, he was the eighth overall pick in the 2012 draft, went to the Pittsburgh Pirates when he was a junior. I remember I was working in the Pirates organization at that time. I was with AA Altoona, and we kind of figured if this dude signs, there's a chance we see him here before the end of the year, chooses not to sign, goes back to Stanford, throws extraordinarily well his senior year, gets taken with the first overall selection, and just ever since then – it's been one head-scratching result after another for whatever reason with Mark Appel. He goes out first season, pretty decent returns, makes 10 starts between uh, short-season Class A Tri-City and Class A Quad Cities, goes out, puts up a combined 3.79 ERA. Then in 2014, his first full season, he gets thrown into the California League and puts up a 9.74 ERA in 12 outings. And his innings were heavily managed. Um, he was kept on a very, very strict pitch count. Just never could put it together. He had one or two starts where it looked like, okay, it's finally starting to click and then he'd go out the next time and he give up seven runs in an inning and a third or something like that and really left you wondering what is the deal here? The Astros to their credit decided alright, it's not working in Lancaster, let's see what he can do bumped up a notch. So he goes up to Corpus Christi at the end of the season, makes seven appearances up there, 3.69 ERA things seem to be sort of coming back into control. Strikes out 38 only walks 13. The following season makes it through Double A, makes it to AAA. Numbers still a little bit shaky, and then the Astros decide after 2015 that they're going to move on from the Markupel, uh project. So he gets traded. The Astros bring in Ken Giles, who obviously contributes to a team that goes on to win the World Series in 2017. And it looks like Maybe this is the type of guy who was a, a prime candidate for a change of scenery. One of those types of guys you hear about in sports. That's got to work out that way for Mark Capel. Never really happened that way with the Phillies organization either. In 2016, uh, he was shut down for the season in late June. He had to have bone spurs removed from his right elbow. Even in those outings in 2016, not overly impressive. He struck out 34, but he walked 20 and 38 and a third. He had an ERA of about four and a half. Um, and then this year... Again, just kind of turns into a ghost. An ERA of over five and a quarter, 17 starts for Lee Valley. He ended up making a couple of appearances in the rookie level Gulf Coast League. He wasn't healthy all season. The thing that's so baffling about Mark Appel, though, is he has slid from being, you know, a top five prospect in baseball to a top 10 prospect in an organization to now being unranked entirely in the Philly system. He's 26 years old, and his stuff, by all accounts, his pure stuff, Still looks outstanding, but for whatever reason, command sometimes has become an issue. This season, it was definitely a pronounced issue combined between the GCL and Lehigh Valley. He walked 54 against 60 strikeouts and in 84 innings, but he's just hittable. Opponents have been able to figure him out for whatever reason, and so many different people have tried so many different things now with Mark Appel you kind of wonder if it's just death by a thousand paper cuts a guy who's been drowned in try this fix it this way do it this way whatever and just hasn't been able to put it together he's still young um, young ish I mean the clock is certainly down to its final moments as far as being somebody that you think could maybe be a long time contributor um, certainly in a starting capacity but um, you know maybe now to the Phillies take a look at what he can do in a bullpen role do they look at you know just an alternate Type of route to get him to the major leagues, but just so confounding because everything was there for Mark Appel. The stuff, he's 6'5, 220. He's the type of guy, personality wise, he's a leader. He's somebody that you love having in the clubhouse. And for whatever reason, it just has never come together for him.
0: Yeah. The really striking thing about Appel is, you know, he was DFA'd and nobody traded for him. So he's put on waivers and nobody claimed him. Right. Um, and now he's. Eligible for the Rule Five Draft, but you know any team could have just claimed him for their 40-man roster. Nobody's probably going to take him in the Rule Five Draft, where if they take him, they have to keep him on the Major League roster. Never mind just the 40-man. Right. Um, so he goes from a situation a couple years ago where you know only a handful of teams could take him, and then the Astros decided nobody else. It was just going to be us. Is going to get a shot at him. To now everybody had a shot at him, and everybody said no. So um you know pitching can you know he's had his fair share of injuries as well uh you know try to come back from that i think a p- part of the the problem is that he's just not as deceptive you know the ball comes out of his hand great and it it you know looks great if you're just looking at the ball but a lot of guys can kind of follow his pitches a little bit easier and you know when you're going to the upper levels of the minors um when they can do that when you're not deceptive in any more, uh, they can either hit you hard or they can know when it's going to be a ball or a strike or whatever. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're we're always going to be following him just because he has that number one overall pick uh, tag on him. But, uh, yeah, a lot has come off his star in the last couple of years.
2: Strike two this week, Sam, is kind of the antithesis of that. And, uh, you know, as we phrased it from John a moment ago, who is somebody that wasn't really top prospect status, uh, maybe kind of a a lesser-known prospect or somebody who was just really off the prospect map at all who's turned into a star that you just did not see coming?
0: Yeah, and and this is a real recent development, and a guy we have not talked about uh, in a long time, especially on this podcast, but just in terms of being a prospect. um, You know, I'll I'll get some of the – the names you might be screaming into your podcast device out of the way. Now, uh, Jose Altuve, you know, becomes American league MVP this year, was signed for $15,000 became a legit prospect during his time in the Astro system hit everywhere he went, but you know, signing for $15,000. That was, that was peanuts in that market. It's still peanuts. Now, uh, Paul Goldschmidt, um, you know, NL MVP finalist this year, everybody kind of questioned, yeah, he's hitting well now in the minors, but what happens when he hits the majors? Is this ever going to carry over? It did for him, uh, which makes you think about first base prospects. We often say the offensive threshold is even higher. But what does it say when a guy keeps hitting that threshold everywhere he goes? Reese Hoskins kind of fits into that. And I think you saw the market kind of correct for Hoskins uh, this past year. We kept asking those questions about him, and then he finally uh, he kept answering them. So you saw him become a top prospect before he graduated. Josh Donaldson was a catcher in the A system, became you know one of the best third basemen, if not the best third baseman for a while there. Uh, Mookie Betts, I think, is just intriguing again from a from my perspective of where I started to where I am now. He was a fifth round pick of the Red Sox in 2011. Um, started out 2012 at Class A short season Lowell, where he didn't. I don't think he hit any home runs that year. Was a speed demon for that level, uh, and you know showed some good plate discipline. But again, was a second baseman, did not look like he was going to become a gold glove right fielder by any means at that point. Uh, And and he's certainly grown into that now. But the guy I want to talk about here for my pick is Tommy Pham, which kind of goes differently from all those other guys I just mentioned. You know, they kind of became prospects and you could see the progression at least coming. With Pham, his progression was, you know, he was a 16th round pick back in 2006. So we're talking a long time ago. Uh, he's now 29 years old. And what he eventually became was kind of like a quad-A player. You know, in 2013 is when he made Triple A Memphis the first time. He was there in 2014. He was there in 2015. He was there in 2016. And he was there this year as well. Uh, you know, and, and put up always pretty good numbers at Triple A Memphis. Um, you know, always being, you know, a WRC plus above 100, which makes him an above-average hitter. Uh, again, going to reach base a ton, all that kind of stuff. But whenever he got called up to the Cardinals, just wasn't putting it together. And I remember there was some social media controversy this year, either he liked or favorited, or favorited or liked or retweeted somebody who's saying why is so and so in the Cardinals outfield and Tommy Pham isn't. And I remember just kind of shrugging and being like, dude, in 2016, you hit 226 with a 324 OBP, 440 slugging. In 78 games, like if you had your chance to prove yourself, this is not a new development that, you know, you're not looking like you're going to be a major contributor to a team that's trying to, you know, win uh, or at least compete in a competitive NL Central. What he did this year is just fascinating to me. Uh, He hit 306, 411, 520, 23 home runs, 25 stolen bases in 128 games. Again, 25 games in Memphis sprinkled in there did not perform as well at Memphis as as he did at St. Louis. Uh, He ended up being, according to Fangrass, worth 5.9 war, which is definitely all-star territory. It's almost superstar territory. Uh, So I'm fascinated to see what happens with him going forward. But guys who look like quad-A players, you know, riding the shuttle back and forth, uh, don't automatically have things click like they did for Tommy Pham. Um, So he was a guy I put in a box just saying, like, okay – You know, every once in a while he might pop up in a box score that I'm following here in the minors, but he's no longer a prospect. He's not going to be somebody I have to worry about. And he just exploded on the scene this year, became one of the best uh, power slash speed options in the game, um, which is great. And I would love to see somebody try to mimic it, but it's not something you see very often at all.
2: Yeah, um, these ones are so funny because it's – you look back on a certain amount of careers of guys that you just, you know, the, the example that comes to mind um, for me in terms of somebody that I was aware of and had heard about, and now is so omnipresent across major league baseball, but I never really covered personally was Kenley Jansen. I remember when I was in Myrtle beach in 2010 as the radio guy, We hosted the California Carolina League All-Star Game, Um, and I remember hearing about Kenley Jansen that season when he was with Rancho Cucamonga. That was only his second year uh, – actually, when he was with Inland Empire. They were still in Inland Empire at that point. Um, And that was only his second year as a pitcher. He had started in 2009 pitching um, for Inland Empire. Of course, Kenley Jansen was a a catcher in 2005, and the Dodgers signed him, et cetera, et cetera. And then blows up, and he's in the big leagues by 2011. Now he's the best closer in baseball. But I never really – Saw him play in the minors, didn't know a ton about him until he was in the majors. The guy who I always think about as somebody that I remember covering and seeing who's blown up into something that I don't think many people expected of him is Salvador Perez. And Sal Perez was always a liked prospect in the Kansas City Royals organization, but in that system... He was kind of back end of the teens, top end of the 20s, and prospect ranking that 2009, 2010, 2011 range. And then all of a sudden, 2011, he makes it into the major leagues. Now, since 2013, he's made five straight All Star games. He's won four gold gloves. He was a silver slugger in 2016. He, I remember seeing him in Wilmington in 2010, and he was kind of the unanimous selection as the starting catcher for the Carolina League in that All Star game in 2010. He was just so head and shoulders above everybody else. And that system at the the time had Will Myers in it. And you remember looking back on that Royals organization, that was when Moustakas was coming up and Hosmer was coming up, and they were churning out all of this talent. And Salvador Perez just kind of got lost in that shuffle, and it wasn't because he wasn't deserving of it. They just had so many other guys in the spotlight that I think he was kind of forgotten. That year with Wilmington, he played in 99 games. He OPS 732. Um, But, you know, I think he threw out something like 63% of base stealers and was just so far and away better than every other catcher. It seemed like we saw that he's always the one that I look at and think, yeah, I think we could have seen this coming. And yet at the time, nobody would have pegged it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's, you need those, uh, you know, to become the world series contenders that the Royals were, you know, as, as many great prospects that they had in that system. um, You need a couple other ones who are going to go from, you know, kind of also rands or roster filler. Not that I'm saying, Perez was that, but you need other guys who are going to become breakout uh, breakout stars, and, you know, Salvador Perez feels like you can always kind of pencil him in for at least AL All-Star consideration the way things have gone the last couple of years.
2: And it shows you what value the Royals organization put on him, the fact that they were comfortable with dealing with uh, you know, somebody like Will Myers away when it looked like Will Myers was certainly the catcher of the future. Maybe he was going to be a first baseman. Maybe he was going to play in the outfield. But then at the end of 2012, they're content to send him out and Salvador Perez becomes the guy. And ever since then has shown why for the Kansas City Royals. So it's fun. This is a really fun topic to to dive into because there's so many guys who could be in this conversation and be on these lists.
0: Yeah, and, and please reach out with whoever you guys would have considered as well. Yeah. I mean, we're happy to reach. Um, you know, you we could do a series of podcasts on this. Yeah. Really. Um, I, I remember batting around an idea of, you know, doing a series on bus and th- those just aren't fun to write. So I think I kind of scuttled it, but um, yeah, I mean, we, we could keep going on and on. And if there's somebody you think we forgot or somebody you want to make the case for the more fun category of, uh, a non-prospect turned to a star. Please let us know.
2: And you talk about you know how systems need those guys, the guys who supplement your top prospects and turn into prospects themselves. We'll talk to one of those guys coming up here in just a little bit, Michael Hermosillo of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. And the reason why we're having Michael on the podcast this week is – Our topic for strike three back on Monday, not this past Monday, but the Monday before um, was Major League Baseball's deadline to add eligible players to the big league 40 man rosters of all 30 major league teams to protect those players from this year's rule five draft. Um, That deadline was last Monday, the 20th. Uh, was it was the 20th. Yeah. The 20th. I'm not good with dates. Um, at 8 PM Eastern time. And we saw a ton of big names added. Michael Hermosillo was one of four guys that the angels added. Um, but a lot of really, really big names that were added to 40 man rosters across the big leagues.
0: Yeah. Some of the the names, all of you will certainly recognize Gleyber Torres, Eloy Jimenez, uh, Brent Honeywell, Austin Meadows, Tyler O'Neill, Jake Bowers, uh, Stephen Gonzalez and the, the twins organization. Uh, You know, some of these are usually pretty easy and it flabbergasts us uh, in terms of why they don't announce these guys earlier. I know, so the deadline was on Monday uh, to name guys to the 40-man roster and protect them. And we were talking about how should we prepare the weekend staff to to cover, you know, let's say Gleyber Torres gets added on Sunday. uh, What should we do in that situation? And and it just never comes to pass. You know, teams are always trying to organized deals, you never know what's going to happen. Um, you know, the last second tweaks, I know the Yankees in particular had a very stacked group of rule five eligible players. You're trying to trade them away for non rule five eligible trailer players. How does that affect things? You don't want to announce something too early because if you announce it, it is official and therefore, you know, what it happens if you make a trade and now all of a sudden you have to fill that 40 man spot all over again. So teams really do keep all their options open. Um, which I'm sure makes some players sweat a little bit more. I, I think the Rays in particular announced super late, uh, and they had some slam dunk picks. Um, you know, Honeywell and Bowers, like I mentioned, Yanni Chirianos, uh, who was twice named IL Pitcher of the Week and, you know, had a 0.97 whip this year. He was added. Justin Williams was added. Ryan Yarbrough was added. Just some slam dunk things, but it, it takes a while to announce it. Um Again, because of all those deals that could happen. Uh, So no real big surprises. I'm not going to sit here and tell you, you know, I can't believe X wasn't protected. He's definitely going to go in the Rule 5 draft. Uh, No, nobody really in that scenario. Uh, We'll talk more about the Rule 5 draft as we get closer to that. We'll have a kind of a full preview. And I'll be there again for the Rule 5 draft this year, uh, that Thursday. So we'll have a full breakdown after it happens as well. Um, but if you were really worried about a top 100 prospects in your system being protected, don't worry. It's, it's happened.
2: Don't worry. It's happened. <laughs> it's an exciting time of the is
0: year. Is that, is that part of the merch we should sell? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I see. think that's,
0: that's a slogan. If we can you get, definitely use Don't worry. It's
2: happened t-shirt for the subsection of fans that are really into the rule five draft.
0: Yeah. And w- <laughs> one thing we should also really just highlight that I, I should have done just now. What being added to the 40-man means—you'll hear Hermosillo talk about this shortly—but this is a big part of people's careers. Like as much as I just said, like, oh yeah, you know, it happened. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, No huge surprises this year. This means that they are officially on a major league roster. Yeah,
2: this is huge for those guys.
0: The 25-man roster does not exist in November, December. You know, it doesn't exist until Opening Day, really. Um, So for right now, they are major leaguers until somebody says otherwise until they get sent down to Meyerley camp and that's a big part of these guys careers you know no matter where you start you have this date circled of when are you becoming rule five eligible uh what what will that mean at that point are you going to be able to prove yourself to the organization that knows you best that you were worthy of one of these 40 spots so uh you know even for somebody like Eloy Jimenez or Labor Torres who you know top five overall prospect in baseball, you better protect them. Otherwise there'll be a race to the door to take them in the rule five. Um, it still means something to them. And this is a big moment for them.
2: So that is strike three for this week's edition of three strikes and coming up here in just a moment we'll head to the angels organization and talk with the guy who got to experience that phone call we'll hear from michael hermaceo about that about his road to really top prospect status in the los angeles angels of anaheim organization and what it took to get there a guy was a former two-sport athlete was committed to play college football at the university of illinois and instead now finds himself knocking on the door of the major leagues michael hermaceo joins episode number 136 of the show before the show podcast coming up next For a minor league system to build itself or especially to rally from what a lot of people have deemed kind of some lean years, uh, you got to hit on guys who are outside of your top picks and you got to hit on some lower round guys. And Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim appear to be doing that right now with outfielder Michael Hermosillo, who was a 28th round selection in 2013 and has vaulted himself into the conversation among the top prospects in that system and joins us on this week's edition of the show before the show. Michael, welcome, man. How are you? How's the offseason treating you?
3: Good, good. everything. everything's good. I've just been hanging out, uh, working out, nothing too crazy.
2: And you get a chance to do it in Arizona. An Arizona native, went to high school in Illinois, graduated from there, drafted by the Angels, and you jump into pro ball in 2013, and over the last couple of years, made a name for yourself as being one of the guys in this system now. And let's start, we'll talk about 2017 first, and then we'll kind of backtrack over the course of your career. But this year, um, right. coming off of a breakout 2016, you start the season back in the Cal League, which I think was kind of a surprise to a lot of people, and then after two weeks, I think the Angels realized, like, oh yeah, that was probably a surprise to us too, so they jumped you up immediately to mobile yeah. then you make your way to salt lake you get yeah. three levels under your belt in 2017 you're on the doorstep of the big leagues um you know i mean this time 2015 you were getting set to, to head back to rookie ball in low a and now all of a sudden you're double a right. triple a guy what t- take us through 2017 right. from your perspective
3: yeah 2017 was definitely crazy um like you said i i started in uh started in high a didn't really think that that was gonna happen just just pure, you know, just thought process through the offseason that, you know, I'd maybe get the chance to start in double-A. Um, but took it head-on, you know, definitely wasn't disappointed. Um, went there, uh, hit, as, hit as best I could while I was there. Um, yeah, and like you said, was fortunate to get out – was able to get out of there like two weeks in. And um, I was feeling good, honestly. I was feeling really good like in the Cal League and kind of had just started to fall off a little bit when they had called me up. And I think – once I got to the um, – once I got to Mobile, it was just crazy, like kind of the jump in terms of talent, I thought. Um, and I, I definitely thought I was ready for it, but you just you just never know. And I kind of went into like an over for 40 slump, something ridiculous like that. And I was pretty like mentally like in a low place for a little bit and then really came out of that after just like talking with some friends and stuff and teammates, obviously, coaches. And you kind of like never looked back from there, kind of made the jump all the way up to like – 220, then got it to like 250, 260, 270 in that range, and then dropped back down a little bit, and then got the call out of there just after digging digging myself out of that hole, and then um just kind of try to cap things off in AAA so it was, it, was, it was good. It was it was a good 2017 um, and definitely looking to improve on that in 2018.
2: To get to the end of 2017, I mean, so many guys, you know, you'll get to those last couple weeks of the season, you'll get five, ten games in AAA, kind of give you a taste and round out a season but you get up there right. for the last month they promoted you on August 3rd and you got right. 30 games in AAA which is a substantial stay and you bat 287 yeah. uh, 828 OPS, I mean that jump from high A to AA everybody always talks about as being, you know, the biggest one in terms of talent but to get to AAA and see guys with big league experience, guys are going to be in the big leagues at the start of September. Right.
3: What was that like to be able to get right. that
2: under your belt for a relatively extended period of time?
3: No, yeah, it was definitely awesome. And there's definitely an adjustment to AAA too. Um, obviously the pitchers pitch different there, especially in the PCL where it's definitely a hitters-friendly league, but um, obviously you still, have, you still have talented pitchers in every – every team you face. So it's just that, you know, sometimes facing that veteran guy who's more like knows how to pitch guys or that young prospect that's throwing hard, things like that. So you still have to make your adjustments there too. And like, that's kind of the biggest thing was that I was happy to finish off um, strong there and just having that confidence. that I know, you know, if I can hit there, like, you know, I can hit hit anywhere. So um, all in all, it was good. And I'm glad, you know, the Angels gave me that chance to get that experience. And also like just getting around, You know, veteran guys like Eric Young Jr., um, Shane Robinson, guys like that. I mean, that helps, too.
0: And one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on this week is because, you know, after all that you put through uh, climbing three levels, showing yourself at each stop, you get added to the 40-man roster with the Angels. Um, Yeah. You know, obviously, that's a great opportunity. That means you are on a major league roster, definitely going to be in major league camp come spring. But just kind of walk us through the process of how you hear about that, how much you're thinking about it. Cause obviously, you know, you know, there's a deadline coming up for you. You are rule five eligible. Um, what was right. that whole process like of being added to this roster, you know, this offseason.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely crazy. Cause I think especially for, um, for high school guys, you kind of learn about this one early, just because especially for high school guys, you're working through the minor leagues for the most part, unless you're like a crazy, you know, Bryce Harper, Mike Trout guy like that you're working your way through those first four, four and a half years anyway. So like rule five is something you always look forward to, obviously, just because you know, it's that like opportunity for you to either get put on a, a 40 man that you're the team you're with or get picked up on someone else's. So it's definitely something you look forward to. And it was definitely something in the back of my head, these first two months of, you know, of the off season, just kind of wondering if they would or wouldn't. Um, Cause you never, you never know until like they actually make that call. And then, Finally got that call on Monday around like three. I was actually driving home from the grocery store um, and Mike Lacasa called me and just basically it was a short call, but it was just like, you know, congrats on the 40 man. Like we want to, we want you to be a part of our organization obviously. And it was cool. It was definitely like one of those like accomplishments, one of those goals, like, you know, checked off the list.
0: Yeah. And I'm looking at the angels 40 man right now. There are four outfielders, or at least four listed outfielders on the forty man roster right now. They're right. Mike Trout, Justin Upton, Cole Calhoun, and you. <laughs> How does it feel to A yeah. be in that group? You're gonna be competing right. with that group, um, and, and now officially be amongst them. It's it's no longer a thought. It's actually on paper, kinda of done and dusted.
3: Yeah, no, definitely. Um I I just think the biggest thing is just believing in yourself. Um obviously when you're, you know, on the same field as the best player in the game, you wanna obviously take up your level, you know, as best you can and, you know, match that. And especially Trout, Upton, uh, Cole Calhoun, they're all obviously good established big leaguers. So, you know, just being able to get around them, I actually work out with uh, Cole at the, at the complex right now, Monday through Friday, he's there. So just being around all that and just like, you know, taking my level up another notch just to try and compete with them. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be huge. I'm definitely going to use, use them as motivation and, you know, you know, kind of feed off them and and get as much information from them as possible.
2: Well, coming out of high school, Michael was a, uh, a well-regarded football prospect who was committed to play at the <laughs> University of Illinois. And then all of a sudden, the Angels come calling in the draft, and that's such a big decision for so many guys. And it's it's one thing if you're, you know, top five round pick, you know the money is going to be huge. You know, more than likely you're right. going to set yourself up, your family up. But for you, 28th round selection, you got a chance to go play Division one football. Take us through that right. that process, that decision-making process, where you know you got a scholarship on one hand, but on the other hand, here's a baseball opportunity. I mean that I would imagine was yeah. an extraordinarily difficult crossroads to come to.
3: Yeah, no, hundred percent. Um, dang, that is it is a crazy one. Just because I did I did love football so much, and it was hard to to make that decision at such a young age to like give up one sport. But I, it pretty much just came down to a couple injuries that I had at the end of the year on um, my senior year, and then. Not only that, but just like just I was just gaining a love for baseball like constantly and I kind of like fell in love with the idea of getting drafted. Um and then I kind of just set my mind to that pretty much pretty much from like March, April on and I kind of knew if there was pretty much any opportunity, I was going to give it a shot. And I think the thing behind that was obviously the 28th round thing that's always crazy just like you know kind of like taking a discount obviously to go to go play like professional baseball in terms of what you think your value is but I just always you know felt like I could compete with the best um especially guys in my class like I I'd, I'd been around them and I had you know played against them and things like that and I just knew that if I would have been in a better baseball environment not really in Illinois where I was so focused on football pretty much for the most part like I I would have been you know at that level and had that consideration so I just kind of trusted in myself and you know had my family support and you know friend support and that just pretty much you know got me through it. so well and I, I mean think even in twenty fifteen when I got sent down when I got sent down um that was definitely like a point where I was almost thinking about like stopping and like going back to football and just having that twenty sixteen season and then you know capping off twenty seventeen now I'm just like confident as ever in the choice I made
2: well and that's what's so amazing so at the start of the 2015 season Michael heads to Burlington uh to get the your start in the Midwest League and then in July starts with with Orem down in football so uh got things started 79 yeah. games in Burlington and then you take that step back but then 2015 into 2016 yeah. something clicked now, I remember when we talked in spring training last year you said going into 2016 you kind of felt lost but then all of a sudden things just started coming together yeah. now that you're even more removed from that can you pinpoint what you think it was in 2016 because you break out i mean 37 games with Burlington to start things you OPS 853 40 games with Inland Empire later on in the season you OPS 883 and it was just like everything was there yeah,
3: yeah i i mean it's it's such a I, i'll try to keep it like as simple you know cuz it's such a long long road long story but i just think i i held my own for the most part in Burlington that 2015 year it was pretty much the last two and a half weeks where i just kind of really fell off and had like a one for 20 something streak or something like that and it brought my average one for 30 something like that and I had never been through that before just like in high school in Illinois you play like maybe twice a week three times a week if you're lucky so playing every day and going through that struggle I had just never I had never experienced that before and I really let it get to me and I just think I made a mentality adjustment once I got to Orem just that you know I wasn't going to let things affect me as much and you know I was just going to work through things and have confidence all the time and And then basically going into that 2016 year was just really getting after in the off season, um, really starting to take baseball seriously, like especially on the hitting side mechanically and not just trusting in ability, like fixing things, like actually going in and focusing on certain things. Um, And just I also had like a quick meeting with uh, my Gallego when they had just kind of established themselves as like the new, you know, uh, regime like running the Angels and he just kind of put, a lot of confidence in me saying that they like trusted in my ability. They know I'm a good player. Like they want to give me the opportunity opportunity because I didn't start the year in, in Burlington that year, I actually started in AZ and extended because I had a shoulder injury. So I just think once I got into that 2016 year, just a combination of all that um, and just like having that confidence really, really set me off.
0: And just to go back to, you know, what you were talking about a little while ago in terms of entering the draft, I know you mentioned some injuries played uh, a role in that and, you know, the way we kind of view football now and, and being – seeing how short the career can be there. But what were the right. Angels trying to do to convince you to play baseball? I mean, they didn't – the risk with taking you wasn't great that high, you know, in the 28th round. Yeah. But obviously, they wanted you. They used a pick on you. What were those discussions like? What were they telling you?
3: I think I really bought into uh, two scouts that have scouted me. um Joel Murray, who was my area scout, and then uh, Larry Corrigan, who was actually a, he's a major league scout, but he had known someone at my dad's, at my dad's work. I think it was his niece. I, I don't remember the story. And he actually got out to see me and he had seen a lot of players and he, you know, was really impressed with me. And we just kind of sat down and talked and he was just like, I really, you know, believe in your ability. I'll do it. much I was like, i to convince the angels to pick you where you want, but even if you can't, like, maybe you should take that opportunity. And, I just kind of bought into them, and, you know, they believed in me, my parents believed in me, and it was just kind of like a combination of, of that, really, I would say. Those two sold me hard on playing baseball. And um, and as you're
0: kind of proving yourself, you know, within within the Angels system, how have you kind of seen the system grow, at, at, you know, as the, as it's gone along? I mean, Tyler mentioned, you know, what – the public perception was pretty much after Trout and Calhoun kind of graduated. It's starting to build itself up again, specifically in the outfield. Right. You know, they drafted Joe Adele, right. Jamai Jones is coming along, you're, you're developing well. Uh, how has the system itself grown in the last couple of years since you first got in it?
3: Um, yeah, I just think we have a lot of athletes, uh, a lot more athletes, um, a lot of guys who, oh man, just like go out there and compete, like you said, you know, Jemiah Jones, Marsh, Adele, um, all those like headline guys, Thice, like all of them, they're definitely very impressive. And then I think we have a lot of depth too. I just think there's a lot of guys that maybe people don't know about um, that just go out there and compete every day. And it's definitely exciting because you want to be a part of like good teams. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's so, it's so like, It was so fun at the end to play in Salt Lake. We were playing for like an actual playoff berth and we came up short, but it just was, it was fun having all those meaningful games. And I just think it's, you know, having quality players like surrounding everybody is is huge. And one thing I wanted to ask. I also think it brings a lot of attention, a lot of attention to our organization too. Because you see so much excitement about like the Dodgers, the Astros, things like that. You want that for your organization as well. Right,
0: and what, one of the ways you've kind of proven yourself, and and you said there's a lot of athletes, um, obviously being recruited as a wide receiver. You're pretty athletic yourself, but this last year mm-hmm. we talked about your breakout 2016. This year your stolen bases went up. You had 10 stolen bases in 2016. This year 35. Seems like you were getting more yeah. aggressive on the base paths. What went into that? Yeah. Was that something you decided? Was that something the Angels told you? How'd that kind of work itself out?
3: I, I think it, it was just it was definitely something I decided. I was kind of I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like I kind of had been us- underestimated on the bases. And that was just kind of, I was so, these last couple of years, I was so focused on figuring out hitting that once I got on base, I I didn't even really have any idea what I was, what I was doing. And finally, for the first time, kind of feeling like I'd figured out a couple of things and being confident with my day-to-day routine, I was able to really focus on base feeling. And it kind of just took off. And I just knew. always knew I had it in me. Uh, I really like that's kind of the one main thing that I was always confident in is my speed. And it just kind of was something I focused on in spring training and just took it into the season. And honestly, I feel I, I'm kind of not disappointed, but I feel like I honestly could have got more. So. It's just kind of something that I want to keep getting better
2: at. Michael, one of the other things everybody raves about with your game is your plate discipline, and especially being somebody that didn't get a chance to play a ton in high school, cold-weather state, all that type of stuff like you're talking about, only a couple games a week. Um, I remember last year you said that that's something that's just always come pretty naturally to you, which is among the rarest qualities I think that a guy can say you just sort of have always had. But to not only have always had that and utilized it so well early on in your career, making that adjustment from level Mm -hmm. to level to level – across three levels in one season has got to be really difficult how did that play out I mean getting used to yeah. not only the way umpires are going to call things at different levels but the ways guys are going to pitch you at different levels and keeping your command of the strike zone as right. a hitter
3: yeah no definitely I think one of the best like things that like pieces of advice I ever got was from um social and spring training just saying how minor leagues is practice for the big leagues and I think a lot of things that went into this year in 2017 with play discipline, things like that, you know, things that people say that I'm I'm good at, whatever. Um, I think I was just, I was practicing so many things at the plate while on top of advancing levels from double A AA to triple A where the pitching is obviously different than it would be in low and high. Pitchers aren't just going to give in. And uh, I just think it was like double AA, A, triple A is where you work on just trusting in yourself, trusting in your plan. Um, I think that's where, it really becomes important just because I feel like this year my strikeouts were higher than they've ever been, and it was just mainly not trusting in what I was doing or changing something at the plate. So I just think the biggest thing coming from like plate discipline is just like practicing it, just like practicing like sticking to your plan, not giving into the pitchers. If you're down 0-2, you're not panicking and, and chasing pitches, which I did a lot of, especially in Double A and early on in Triple A when I figured out you know you're not going to get that 3-2 fastball anymore or even three one fastball so um I think just a multitude of those things you know the experience all that put together is just what's gonna you know help your play discipline or You know, keep it keep it going,
2: Michael. Just twenty two years old, be twenty three at the start of the twenty eighteen season. Last year, your first invitation to big league camp. This year, you're going to be a member of the forty man, Um, and a a twenty eighth round pick. You know, not even five years ago, and that number eight hundred and forty seventh overall. I mean, even knowing that you knew throughout your time being recruited to play football, whatever the next thing was going to be, you always kind of knew. I can hang with these guys in baseball now that you're proving it does that still does that still serve as motivation the fact that like yeah nobody else saw me until the 28th round this organization believed in me how much does that still fuel you
3: um yeah definitely to a certain extent um I always had that had that little bit of fire because because of where I was picked but now I feel like Oh, man, that's a tough one. I feel like I'm just getting motivation, like, from myself. Just goals that I want to reach. Um, Not not really, like, worried about that, like, the pick anymore, just because, like, I feel like sometimes when I think about that type of stuff, I get caught up in what other people are doing. And the biggest thing like that I feel like it's helped me succeed is just, like, focusing on what I can control and what I can do. So I really am just, like, in a constant battle with myself just to, like, get better um, in the weight room, get better on the field, get better defensively, get better um, play discipline, things like that. It's more just like trying to compete with myself and just like, you know, get better that way.
0: All right. Well, that kind of transli- or transitions well into the one we'll w- end you on. Um, you know, in, in researching you and looking some stuff up, specifically about the draft, mm-hmm. I brought up this story from 2013 uh, from the News Tribune. Uh, from the Illinois Valley where you're from, and they did this story after you were drafted uh-huh. and after you signed and all that. And I just want to read you the kicker quote. Uh, this was published in June 2013. I'm happy to be an okay. angel. Hopefully I can be playing next to Mike Trout in four to five years. I can't wait to get started. So that was four to five years ago, almost exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now you're on the 40-man roster. Now you will be playing with Mike Trout in the spring at the least, hopefully in the summer as well. If you could go back in time and talk to that 2013 version of yourself, what would you tell you?
3: I would just say, oh, man, just, like, you're right on point. Like, just stick to what I'm doing. Um, I always had that mentality. Like, to me, the pick was always a number. And, like like I said, and, like, we've talked about, like, I always knew I had it in me, and it was just – that's never changed. Like, it's wavered at times, but deep down, like, I've always known that, like, you know, I I belong – you know in this spot and i'm just gonna you know continue to you know do what i can to just like keep achieving goals that's pretty much it definitely that's crazy i never i've never uh, i don't even know if i read that to be honest,
0: but that's cool. well the internet that's cool. is a big place that's you can totally go here. It. yeah <laughs> google yourself i guess and find it at yeah. 2013 yeah. nostradamus
2: yeah. michael hermosio it's pretty awesome
0: <laughs> right <laughs> that's
1: Michael one
2: of our favorite guys that's in the minors funny. and we say this uh about a certain amount of guys from week to week but honestly legitimately maybe the best minor league baseball twitter follow at mhermacio 10 I cannot recommend following Michael Ooh. enough and uh, there it is <laughs> Michael thanks a ton man congrats on all yeah, success some, so far some people
3: some people <laughs> for some people yeah I guess <laughs> that's, that's true that's, for some people that might be <laughs> might not be might not be
2: the same <laughs> cup of tea depending on our listenership (laughs) yeah michael congrats on all success man and uh (laughs) enjoy the rest of the offseason and spring training and we'll see you in big league camp come february
3: awesome thank you guys We're
2: we're in one of the very last cones of silence of the Major League and Minor League offseason prior to the winter meetings coming out of the Thanksgiving break. And uh, so before things explode into craziness for one Benjamin Hill, we welcome him back into the fold on the show before the show podcast. Hi, Ben. How was Thanksgiving?
1: Hey, Thanksgiving was great. And, you know, I was on vacation before that. I went to Pittsburgh. I went to San Francisco, uh, saw family and friends over Thanksgiving. I was out of the office for like 17 days. I don't even know if that's legal in some states to be out of of an office for that long it's certainly anti-american but i did it and uh i'm back and you're right it's still a little slow but um next week we've got some uh team name and logo unveiling Um, next week already i I would say multiple instances stay tuned it's got to get out there for the christmas rush yeah exactly so we've got some of that finally it's been a little slow on that front this year usually in november we've by this point, we've had you know two or three, but uh, got a couple coming next week, and then uh, the winter meetings, and uh, then a little bit's quiet again, and then then it'll be busier in the new year in twenty eighteen. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We are,
2: but that's okay because uh, when we get to this point in the off season, sometimes that's all we look forward to are the things that are coming up in the season. But that's still a little ways off. Um, and with that, we'll uh, we'll talk about some things that. You know, are timeless. And uh, Ben's got a story up on the blog right now, which is actually one of my favorite pieces of the offseason so far. It's just kind of a run through of ballparks that Ben has been to that are no longer part of the minor leagues. Teams moved or teams, you know, changed affiliations. They're bought by new ownership groups and they left the city or they got a new ballpark in the city, whatever it is. But 13, an unlucky 13 of ballparks that Ben has seen that are now no longer in the minor league landscape. This is really cool. Two of them stood out to me, especially um, because of. Of things that you link to in the story um, that gave kind of a look at what things are like nowadays. Um, one of them, I believe, was Joe Davis Stadium in Huntsville, um, but the other one was Greer Stadium in Nashville. And you link to a story about what the plan is right now to redevelop that area that's currently being held up in the courts. But there are pictures of Greer Stadium now, and it looks like a like a set that you would use for The Walking Dead if you were going to be shooting it in Nashville. It's all overgrown. Windows are all blown out of the press box. There's graffiti all over the outfield walls. The big guitar scoreboard is still there but it's dark it's fascinating these pictures
1: yeah yeah you know of the 13 uh stadiums i've visited that are no longer in the world of milb um i'd say nashville's greer stadium which was uh the home of the sounds through 2014 you know it it had definitely seen better days even you know through uh, the sounds last couple of seasons and now that it's not being taken care of it is uh deteriorated uh, at a fast and furious rate. Um, so I don't know what the future is there, but I don't think there's going to be any further sports or, uh, you know, certainly minor league baseball there. That's, that's certainly for sure. Um, you know, but a lot of those stadiums are hosting, you know, independent teams, some are collegiate teams and things of that nature. Most have found second and third lives since the minor league team uh, departed for sure.
0: And as you were putting this list together, um, you know, 13 parks it's pretty hefty were there any of them that you you kind of had pangs of nostalgia for or since i mean there's reasons why all of these teams moved right whether like tyler mentioned it's building a new stadium in the same city or going to a a new stadium in a new city what have you but when you were doing this was there anything you're like i wish i could go there one more time to watch a game
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, really uh, some nostalgia for all of them, because even if a stadium, you know, was well past its uh, shelf life in terms of hosting a minor league team, you know, I'm just glad I got to be there and take it in. And and uh, so a little bit of nostalgia for everywhere. Um, I'd say the one I have the most nostalgia for, I mean, I was only there one time would be Sam Lynn, uh, Sam Lynn Ballpark in Bakersfield, home of the Blaze. And uh, you know, the thing with Sam Lynn was that of all the 13 parks I visited uh, that are no longer with us, Sam Lim was probably the poster child for a ballpark that should no longer be hosting minor league baseball. You know, it was built 70 uh, some years ago, it was in pretty rough physical condition. You know, minor league baseball had been grant- granting waivers or variances. Uh, to allow it to continue hosting a minor league team, uh, even though it wasn't quite up to snuff in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, the condition of that ballpark is a big reason why, you know, two teams were contracted from the California League, along with High Desert, and uh, went over to the Carolina League. But the sun set in your eyes. (laughs) Uh, You know, they would have sun delays at the beginning of the day because the stadium was built facing the sun. But the front office there, uh, who I got to know a little bit, uh, really loved it and sort of had a chip on the shoulder and an underdog mentality, but sort of liked operating in such a challenging place. The fans who showed up, and you find this at all the struggling ballparks, the fans who show up are like the best kind of fans, because uh, they're no Johnny-come-latelys. They're the uh, cranks and the eccentrics and the ones who uh, keep coming out, even when uh, when the atmosphere is maybe uh, leaving a little to be desired, and then they create their own weird atmosphere. So there was just a strangeness to that place that I really liked, and as much as I certainly understood from a practical standpoint that minor league baseball had to go uh that's the one i wish i could go back to and i I know there are a lot of people out there that feel the same way
2: ben is now at 155 of the 159 minor league ballparks that are currently in use it was 156 but augusta is scheduled to move into a new ballpark coming up this spring so it's dropped down to 155 so obviously that's one of the now four remaining what are the other ones that you haven't been to
1: yeah so uh yeah heading into 2018 the four stadiums that will be operational in 2018 that I've not been to are, uh, the new ballpark in Augusta, as you mentioned, the Florida fire frogs who play in uh, a town that I'll never quite pronounce correctly. Kissimmee. Kissimmee. Kissimmee, Sam. Yeah. I've been to that ballpark. Kissimmee.
0: I've been there when the Houston Astros had their spring training park.
1: there. Right. And they're so they're playing in a, a spring training facility that is no longer used for spring training. Um, but it now hosts that team. So I need to get to, uh, to uh, see the Florida Firefrogs, the Augusta Green Jackets, as I mentioned, and the two teams in Colorado, the Grand Junction Iraqis and the Colorado Springs Sky Sox. Oh, what a
2: surprise. And, there are two teams in the state where I live that you have avoided out of the four teams that you have not been to. What a what a shocker.
1: Yeah, it was totally intentional. I don't want to go to the <laughs> mountain time zone or as I call it, the Mount Mon the Tyler Mountain time zone. Um it is uh, – no, it, it was – I meant to get it into my Pioneer League trip this year. My original plan for that trip was all eight teams in the Pioneer League as well as Grand Junction – or excuse me, as well as Colorado Springs and Salt Lake. Uh, I just couldn't get an itinerary to work, so I just cut out uh, Grand Junction and Colorado Springs, the Colorado portion. But I do want to get there. 2018, you know, is a significant year for the Colorado Springs Sky Sox as it will be their last season as a Triple A team. And then they will go all the way down to uh, rookie ball in 2019, you know, as part of a uh, interlocking series of moves that we've discussed in the past. And you can look it up or email me if you want me to get into it. But it, it takes a lot of time to explain these things. But yes, Colorado Springs, Grand Junction, the Florida Firefrogs, and the Augusta Green Jackets, all I got left. I keep delaying this total reassessment of my life until I've been everywhere. And that's the great thing about minor league baseball. It's, a, uh, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. <laughs> Every time you think you got it, like a new one pops up and you're like, Durr! and you want to smash that new one. I mean, you want to visit it, you want to love it, but you know what? You know what I mean? for, the, for the purposes of this analogy. Well, yeah. one thing that stands
0: out about this, too, obviously we mentioned Augusta, but Lake Olmstead Park opened in 1994. And some of these parks, you know, some of them, Sam Lynn's been there forever, uh, Rosenblatt was there forever as well. But some of these, by modern structure standards, weren't that old, and yet they became old very quickly and are being replaced by even newer things as parks are being built now do you feel like they're doing anything to make sure they're irreplaceable or is there anything changing about design of parks anything consideration of parks to make them last longer than just 20 years in, in their kind of cycles
1: um you know i think it's a case-by-case basis i do think that um, places like lake olmstead and augusta places like uh, new britain stadium which hosted the rock cats um, you know, we're stadiums that were not very old, but I think were built you know on the cheap by minor league baseball standards, and uh, you know didn't have the amenities that that people come to expect with the you know to make minor league baseball games truly social outings with you know a lot of room to move, the three hundred sixty degree concourses, group areas, um, you know video boards, that kind of thing. So I think the stadiums that even if they're only twenty years old, by no means am I saying that teams should leave stadiums that are 20, 25 years old if they immediately don't suit their needs. There's a lot of factors at play there. But um, I do think that newer stadiums generally are built a little bit more for the long haul than you will see from some of the stadiums built in the 90s. But, you know, I think that every time a new stadium opens and, you know, it's just bright and new and shining, it just seems like, man, this place is going to be here forever. And I think to myself, okay, if a ballpark opened in, let's say, 2017 – Are we going to be talking in like 2040 about a new ballpark? And maybe, you know, maybe. And it's strange to think that how uh, new things become old very quickly. Um, You know, that, that applies to all of us. It's a metaphor.
2: That's true. One of my favorite things um, from this blog post, I clicked through to Ben's post from 2011 when he visited, and it's probably the perfect example of this, but uh, Atalanto Stadium in uh, California, which hosted the High Desert Mavericks. At the time Ben went there, it was a Stater Brothers Stadium. The Mavericks, of course, moving after 2016. Um, But High Desert, I mean, I remember when they announced that move, on one of those rabbit holes that you fall down researching things for minor league baseball. I remember finding a story from the Los Angeles Times from when that stadium opened in the mid-1990s. I think in 1994 was its, its first season. It was a state-of-the-art, brand-new facility, and this area of California is booming, and this is going to be a crown jewel to minor leagues. And by the time Ben got there, this is a quote. Um, there is a photo of the – box office, a now abandoned box office that has a handwritten sign that says box office with an arrow pointing to another box office. Then this is a quote from that piece that Ben posted in 2011. Immediately to the right of this is a bulletin board displaying flyers for a pair of concerts that took place in 2002. And this was in 2011 that Ben visited, helping that, to solidify the impression that this is the land that time forgot. That's incredible.
1: It, yeah, it was bizarre. I, I believe that stadium opened in 1991. As you right. said... As you said, a, a crown jewel. And 20 years later, it was uh, you know just weather worn and beaten down, and uh, really low attendance. I remember they had on uh, some of the state the pillars on the on the concourse uh, for years. They would um, write the opening day lineups uh, on the on the concourse uh, pillars, and the 1991 opening day lineup on the um, on the stadium pillar on the concourse pillar. Was just the paint was peeled and cracked. And if you just glanced at it, you would have thought that was an opening day lineup from like 1948 or something like that. And it was like, wait, this was 1991? This wasn't even that long ago. But, um, you know the the economy you know was hurt really bad in that area a big loss of jobs i believe there was a medical or a,
2: an air force base
1: an air force base that closed and so it, it the city of atalanta went into tough times um the demographics changed uh, just some negative factors were at work but of all the stadiums i visited that was certainly sort of the most uh harrowing and not, 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 i don't want to be that uh, dramatic but it was the most striking in terms of uh how, how much the fortunes had changed in such a short amount of time. Well,
2: that blog post is up at bensbiz.mlblogs.com right now. And uh, speaking of ballparks and teams moving and changing directions, all that kind of stuff, we had a, a really interesting story pop up this week um, in which the Laredo, Texas city council voted unanimously on a proposal to bring baseball back to the city of Laredo in the form of a Mexican league team that will occupy UniTrade stadium for at least some of its home games in 2018. Um, it's the team. Formerly, the Red Eagles of Veracruz, Rojos del Aguila de Veracruz, which are moving, they'll split time. Their home ballparks will be two uh, Nuevo Laredo and Laredo, Texas. They'll share uh, a home facility. This is interesting because we oftentimes we hear discussions about Major League Baseball expansion. Could it be Montreal? Could it be Mexico City? Where are they looking outside the United States? We don't often think about it in, in reverse of. A Mexican league team coming over to this side, which is kind of interesting and cool.
1: Yeah, it is cool. Um, so this team, uh, I believe it's the Teco Lotes. My uh, my Spanish is is really not good, but uh it, it means owls in Spanish. The Teco tecolote, Lotes Please someone tweeted me how to or, or call me. Call me and tell me how to pronounce owls in Spanish. Uh but this team uh, in Laredo, it was approved to move from Veracruz after the twenty seventeen season to Nuevo Laredo in Mexico and uh, then shortly after that move was announced then a new deal was announced that said not only will this team play in Nuevo Laredo they will now play across the Rio Grande River in Laredo Texas so now you have a Mexican league team playing in a it's the Tecolotes dos Laredos the owls of the two Laredos um, that will split its time between Nuevo Laredo in Mexico and Laredo, Texas. And, uh, that's really cool to think now that there's, uh, Mexican baseball on, uh, you know, American soil. And, uh, obviously there's a, a world of, um, similarities between the two Laredos. I mean, they're, they're sister cities. They're, you know, essentially almost connected with one another. And, um, there is precedent for this. Uh, Laredo, Nuevo Laredo had a baseball team also named the Tecolotes, uh, that in the eighties did the same thing. Um, split time between, uh, Nuevo Laredo and Laredo, and, and did the same thing uh, in the 80s. So there is precedent for this. Um, the city lost its baseball team, uh, I believe, after the 20, 2003 season, and now it's great to see uh, it coming back in um, this really unique arrangement between a Mexican League team and uh, it, the two cities in two different countries.
0: And, I mean, I'm sure you don't have the answers yet, but what are you kind of looking at in terms of how they're going to what, – what is the Mexican League experience going to be like on American soil? Are they going to be doing bilingual – Uh, announcements or that like what are your kind of expectations
1: you know I don't know what to expect and uh, you know this announcement is fresh I'm going to be writing about it in a batting around column that'll be up uh, tomorrow on Thursday when this podcast appears as well Um, but certainly as we get closer to the season the Mexican League season begins um, they haven't announced the 2018 schedule but it's going to begin very late March early April so I will uh, certainly once we get a little closer to the season and things are a little more established there uh, I want to check in with the team and see how they're operating. Um, you know, in doing a little research today about all this, um, I learned that Laredo, Texas is actually one of the least ethnically diverse cities in the country. It's something like 96 percent Hispanic um, Mexican, obviously, uh, making up the, the almost all of that because it's so close to Mexico. So if you have a population, you know, in the United States or not, that is so um, already Spanish speaking and already of Mexican descent, um, I don't see probably a huge difference between the way the game is presented in Texas versus Mexico, uh, given the proximity between the two places, and that um, almost surely, I'm sure, in a lot of cases, a lot of the front office staff will be involved, um, you know, in putting on the show in both places. I, I, I really, of course, do not expect them to have two. You know, parallel front offices that don't that do their own separate thing, depending on what country they're in. I imagine this will be a fluid operation and uh, fairly similar, no matter where the team is playing. I could be wrong, and stay tuned. I will write about this in the future. It's be- right. I,
0: I want to make it clear. Uh, I don't. I'm not expecting it. Like because you're on American soil, you speak English. Like I, I'm just fascinated. Yeah, it's interesting, it's- so, and it's. I have not seen anything quite like this. Um, at least in my time, in the minors. no, I hadn't, miners. I
1: hadn't I hadn't as e- either, and I'm not sure if there's a precedent uh, for it beyond the uh, the fact that Laredo and Nuevo Laredo had done it in the past. I'm not sure if other Mexican cities and American cities have done this arrangement. and I'm intrigued by it. and uh, and yeah, it puts one more team on American soil, which is uh, I don't want to take teams from Mexico or anything like that, but it's cool to have one more team in Texas uh, while also not losing its presence in Mexico either. It's just yeah, uh, that's a cool thing. like Two teams in
0: Niagara Falls or something. I'm trying to think of something we could do with Canada. An international league team. <laughs> Eastern, I guess Can-Am is too easy, but um, something like that. One, They play one side uh, of the border one day and one side of the border. I like side. that.
1: Let's start a border league where every team has two ballparks on uh, in, in two different countries. There we go. <laughs>
0: and you've got a, your home
1: record, your other home record, and your away record. There you go. Right. And the, and the World Series in this league is the teams with the best um, – uh, never mind. We need to think about
2: this. We've to storyboard this idea. Well, and it should provide a little more stability for um, Unitrade Stadium and the community of Laredo, Texas. They did have uh, an independent league team there, the Laredo Lemurs of the American Association. That ballpark only opened in 2012, and it looks really, really cool, um, but in the most kind of indie league thing ever, the Laredo Lemurs website still exists, and at the end of 2016, there's a graphic that says see you next season, and they just folded up shop and never came back so uh, a little bit more stability maybe for uh, for the city of laredo and for a ballpark that looks really really cool and if you find yourself in that area Guess what? You can check out some some really fun baseball. Mexican League baseball is really really cool. I got to go to a game, uh, the Tigres de Quintana Roo, like five years ago, and it's a really really fun atmosphere. Um, and moving along, final thing on uh, on the docket for this week, which actually ties into our first topic. Um, back in two thousand nine, Ben visited Joe Davis Stadium in Huntsville, Alabama, which was the home of the Huntsville Stars from nineteen eighty four to twenty fifteen. There is a discussion now, the Huntsville Stars then moved uh, in 2015 to Biloxi, Mississippi, where they became the Shuckers. Now there is discussion that maybe Huntsville is going to be back in the mix in the Southern League. The Mobile Bay Bears have been purchased. The new ownership group there wants to move the team to the Huntsville area. What's the latest on this? And is there a possibility that Joe Davis Stadium comes back into play, Ben?
1: Um, To answer that last question first, no. There is no way Joe Davis Stadium, or no way, I, you know, I've been wrong before. Um, but one of the reasons the Huntsville Stars, or not one of the reasons, the reason the Huntsville Stars left Huntsville uh, was because Joe Davis Stadium was pretty dilapidated and the team was really struggling to draw there. So they went to Biloxi. But all along, ever since the Stars moved, you know there's been other baseball owners looking at that market and saying, you know, if uh, they can play in a new stadium in that market, you know, with the aerospace industry and, uh, you know, good demographics for minor league baseball, um, the stars leaving wasn't so much a reflection of Huntsville as a whole, as it was about the stadium they played in. So now that the Mobile Bay Bears have been purchased and Mobile, uh, not coincidentally, is the the worst drawing team in the Southern league. um, You know, that team was purchased uh, with the intent of trying to relocate them to huntsville um not technically huntsville it's madison alabama in the greater huntsville uh, region in north alabama um, but that is the process that is taking place now uh, the sale of the mobile mobile bay bears to an entity called ball Corps. Uh, was announced on November 7th. The very next day, the city of Madison put out a press release saying they were exploring the possibilities of building a multi-use venue with, obviously, a minor league baseball team being one of the uh, tenants. And that minor league baseball team would, of course, be the uh, relocated Mobile Bay Bears. So uh, that process is going to continue to play out. Obviously, the Bay Bears are not going anywhere in 2018 and probably in 2019 either. Who knows? but it looks like their time may be running out as uh, the process is greatly accelerating to relocate them to Madison and to put baseball back in the Huntsville market. He is Benjamin
2: Hill. Uh, It's a good thing you got your vacation in because everything blows up for Ben coming up over the next couple of weeks. So while all of you will be gearing up for Christmas, Ben will be bringing you all the coolest, latest news for Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball, the winter meetings, rebranding season, all that kind of stuff. And uh, good luck, man. Enjoy it. This is a fun time of year for you. I would assume.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is a fun time of year, and, and that's my Christmas or holiday gifts to uh, to all of you. All, all the great content that I bring. Happy holidays, everyone, and enjoy the content. hashtag content <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks, guys.
2: Well, now we got to get out of this episode without screwing it up because it's been good at this point. It's always yeah, my no, fear.
0: that was good. Yeah. Um, well, one thing. I'm I will say uh, one thing that's kind of flooding the news this week in baseball is Shohei Ohtani has asked for applications from people, basically surveys like, "How are you going to recruit me to your major league organization?" So, Tyler, what what, what should we do to get Shohei Ohtani to like not play baseball and just join the the minor league baseball podcast?
2: Oh man. Um, well, he wouldn't have to leave home to do it. I mean, we already do it remotely here in New York. I'm in See Denver, so true. he could stay at home. Sure. Um, you know, we might have to... Maneuver our hours around because I can't imagine it's the easiest. I don't even know what time it is in Tokyo right now, but I think it's like eight in the morning. So we would have started recording maybe a little early if he's not, you know, exactly a morning person. We can be flexible. It's 7 45 a.m. there right now. So we would have started recording at 6 a.m. But yeah, we can be flexible. We can move it back if he wants to do it late mornings. We can move it up if he wants to do it overnights, so, you know, whatever works for him. Um, I bet we can will say probably this. get him a Ben's Biz T-shirt. We haven't gotten them yet because we're not cool enough, but we could probably swing one for him.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. And we'll find one in his size. And yeah, uh, you know, we will not limit his role. We can say that. That's true. You know, that's true. Some teams are deciding whether they only want him to be a pitcher or they're going to allow him to be a pitcher and a hitter. We he can have as many roles as he wants with us. That's that's point one. Point two, uh, we have no restrictions on our international signing. That is true. That is true. We are not.
2: We are not held back. We weren't yeah. hit with any of the the luxury tax, the the penalty for overspending on bonuses. We don't have any of that.
0: We don't have any of that. We don't actually have like five million dollars to spend, but we don't have penalties. Right, but you're not supposed to say on that. Our spending.
2: all we're doing. But is he doesn't say, know that. Well now <laughs> he does, you just said so.
0: Oh, that's true.
2: <sighs> well, there it goes. Shohei, don't we we listen were,
3: to the last we five were all seconds. lined not up.
2: To get back. <laughs> we were all lined up to sign Shohei Otani to the podcast. And now nothing. Now we got to go back and try to restructure an extension with Ben. Unbelievable. (laughs) Ah, come to play for us, Shohei Otani. Come to play for the Minor League Baseball Podcast. It'll be very fun. We'll make it worth your while.
0: Yeah, that, that's all well, That's like all we that. need to say. I think we've proven ourselves. Exactly.
2: That's it. That works for me. Um, well, I'm really excited for the next few weeks because uh, once we get into to redesign, rebranding season, it's one of my favorite times of the year. So that'll be a bunch of fun. We'll have that coming up with Benjamin Hill. Um, big thanks to Ben. You can find all his stuff at the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com, as well as on Twitter. He is at Ben's Biz. Michael Hermacio again, is on Twitter at mhermosillo10. And a big thanks to Michael for joining us. And uh, that'll do it for this week's edition of the show before the show podcast he's sam Dykstra. i'm tyler mahn we'll talk to you next week
1: okay
0: picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you